And, um, you know, I never know what I'm going to play at the beginning of the show. <clears throat> so I'm always kind of looking for some in inspiration. Right. And um, it's like, yeah, I really like that song. Now, the studio version has uh, Ralph McDonald on percussion. Like, that's a kind of a different rendition of this. It's great. Don't get me wrong. It's, that has almost a country and Western vibe to it. That little uh, guitar run about three quarters of the way through the, uh, through the song. Um, like very, very CNW. And you know, it's Phoebe Snow was, uh, you know, kind of a one hit wonder, but I think she's really hard to categorize as a, as an artist because obviously she's mixed race. Um, you know, she's, a she doesn't come across looking like a, you know, classic, rock star, pop star, or, you know, one of these kind of wafy folk singers like Joan Baez or Joni Mitchell. She doesn't really fit a mold. So it, I think it was kind of hard to market her in some ways uh, as a record company. But you could hear in that song that she could do just about anything with her voice. Like she could hit those really high registers, get those really high notes, and then she could growl if she wanted to. It's it's kind of a you know it's kind of amazing to witness somebody like that when they're when they have that kind of a talent and they can do just about anything. It's kind it's it's like wow, you know that's 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 quite something. Anyway, uh, kind of a different uh, way to start the show, and uh, lovely, absolutely lovely song. But on the studio version, the percussion that Ralph McDonald plays is freaking hypnotic. And Ralph, I think he plays, um, I think he plays some kalimba on it and some other stuff. It just gets you into this kind of almost like light trance. Uh, well, welcome to the show. How is everybody this morning? We got a little bit of a different setup. Uh, I hope it's working out for people. And I'll tell you what happened even go over here now and connect with you um i'll tell you what happened is that so far I like chat tango better let me so let me uh, let me tell you uh kind of the genesis of this um so last night i let me see where are we so last night i decided that i i wanted to change my website every now and then I get a bug up my ass and want to change something. I think it might, I think it might've been this Leo new moon, Leo full moon. It's like, let me get creative. I'm tired of that old fucking website. So I went through a bunch of different themes because you can, you can do these themes and so I found this theme, the one that you're looking at right now. I'm like, Okay, this looks kind of cool. And when you, so they have a function in WordPress when you, um, you can look at like install and preview. So I did that. I'm like, wow, okay, it looks pretty good. I don't have to make a lot of modifications here. I can make a few changes. There was a sidebar and that was really important because the sidebar is where Chatango shows up. So I'm like, hey, it looks good on the preview. 
So I hit publish. Like, okay, I can work with this. But then when I published it, it didn't show up the same way on the site that it did in the preview. And so now I'm without a sidebar. I'm like, well, that's, that's messed up. And then I couldn't go back and find the original template that I was using. So I'm like, okay, I'm kind of, I'm kind of stuck with this. So let me build out the sidebar. So I went to chat tango to get code for the chat. And I went to, to log into chat tango and uh, none of my passwords work. The chat tango is kind of, kind of weird. So I asked for a prompt to send me my password. Like I did it three times and nothing happened. And I'm like, okay, I'm kind of, I'm kind of screwed here because I know how much chat is important to this experience. Then I remembered that BoxCast has its own chat. So what you're seeing here is an integrated chat with the BoxCast player, which is not a bad thing. Not everybody can handle it because some people are on their phones. It probably looks different. If you're, on a, if you're on a computer, like a laptop or a desktop, you're probably loving it. If you're on a phone, maybe not so much. So this is not a finished product by any chance, by any stretch. And I'm going to, if I don't get anything from Chat Tango, if I don't get a, a, a prompt to be able to get back into my account and grab code, I will look at another um, chat client because I think the sidebar works pretty well. It kind of gets into a frame for people on tablets and I think maybe even the phone. So I'm going to play around. I may have to pay for it, but that's okay. And I do want to have a sidebar. I like a sidebar in a website. Cause you can put things and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good function. It's just really weird. Like this is, again, this is the new fucking internet. Like it looks a certain way. You preview it. Hey, yeah, this is great. Not too many mods. And all of a sudden you hit it. And then I couldn't go back and find the other website, the other template. So we're here now um, and uh, enjoy the, uh, the box cast experience for now, but uh, there's no guarantee it'll be the same way tomorrow. Just saying. All right. Thanks for being here nonetheless. And I can actually go in now for me when I was, I couldn't, I couldn't use chat tango. I got, I got locked out of chat tango because of the password thing. And I'm the, you know, I was going to say fuck, but I'm the moderator and I can't, I can't go into chat tango. So I'm like, so I could only read your comments, which are, it's not bad. At least I have connection. And I could only, so here's the other thing. I could only use Chat Tango or see your comments on one browser, which was Safari. So I'm, I'm running three different browsers so I can like interact with you. But now I can interact with you. It's really simple. So we got a bunch of people here today. I'd love your feedback on, I'm seeing a lot of people I haven't seen before in chat. This is great. I don't know if it's the, the chat, but I'm, like David Hawk, good to see you, David. Pamela Joy's here. Kelly B, how are you changing colors? I can't find that now. So you guys are you guys are messing around. Look at that, you're innovating. Good day from the new chat metaverse. Hi, Hucklebuck. Empath, I love that name. Good morning to you. Orange is the new white. <laughs> yeah, uh, cool. Same chat land, you only different. Good, I like that. Yeah, WC is back. I can't log in. It says it does work. You're in. 
No, you're in. Anybody know a way to make the chat next to the video player? No, you can't do that because it's embedded in the video player, which I've... Um, so I'm going to have to try to find another chat client because, again, the sidebar is key. How do you recover the video box? I don't know. I'd like to log in, though, and I want to change my name color, too. Well, you, you don't have to log in. You, I think you can just... I don't, I, again, I, I don't know how to use this. This, yeah, this box cast. Uh, yes. Hi, Rocky. It is different. Is this permanent? Uh, probably not. Well, I can see the chat again. So some people like it. So here's the challenge. The people that enjoy this are, are the people that, um, where my, where did I go? Where did I go? Hmm. I got to get out of here. Hold on. Um, I can't even see. Oh, there I am. Okay. Um, well, I guess I won't be logged in since someone accept my email. I don't, I don't think you need an email. You just type a name. Just type a name. Yay, I can chat. See, it's, it's one of those things. I can't see the vid screen at the same time. I know that's a problem because they embed it in the actual player. That's why I miss the thumbnails. It's easier on the eyes on Boxcast. So Tom watches on Boxcast. Uh, oh man, uh, Phoebe Snow was great. Boxcast link is better for chat. Uh, Wendy says is here. I like Boxcast site better. <laughs> as long as you get to watch it. I miss the capacity to highlight and respond to a chat or comment. Uh, good morning, everyone. Hmm, in this reaction, new chat format, easy to read for sure. It's easy to scroll. It is easier. How is the rumor mill up in Aguanga, MK? Boxcast is totally sterile. Well, this isn't sterile. Wendy says, love that song. Sony says, great. So, see, Sony's back. She's here. Go to Boxcast if the orange is too too much. <laughs> you don't like the orange? Empath says, I like Chat Tango better. It's weird. It keeps pausing. Frozen so far. Like I'm, yeah, I'm with you on that. Okay, so, yeah, she is a lot like Roberta Flack, isn't she? I was going to make that connection. Living in, I get tired of orange. Boxcast has no orange. My God. Are we down to like no change in my sister since yesterday? Praying for progress. Well, we're all we're all hoping. Yes, I have a hat on. We're all we're all hoping and praying for her, for everybody that's uh, under under it under the spell. Uh, JJ says, "Ooh, I like this." You can't please everybody, now can you? Some people like it. Fran says, "I'm on my phone and it's thumbs up." Uh, maybe try scrolling around stream. Let's see who else do we have here. Anybody new? Scrubbies, what's going on, Tamara? Uh, yeah, Kelly, you're here. We see you. Beth Berry, I like this better on my phone because you often couldn't log in on the other site or make more than one comment a day without logging me logging out. Is there a way to tag another user like in Chat Tango? I don't know. This is all very new. Renstar is here. I believe the colors are random. Could be. 
two for the price of one, too old for this stuff. You'll fart. Uh, color is random. On box cast, it is side by side. Okay, there you go. So, pro I guess as long as is, I eat, as long as you all have the same experience, it was automatic. I didn't do anything. It does seem easier overall. Hi, Robert. I figured this out in a minute, but today's date is so you're keeping us on our toes. I kind of fuck up sometimes. Right, two sixteen twenty two. I know it's because I did it late at night last night. I was I was. Um, Sometimes when you're late, I'll fix that. Thank you for that. Sometimes when it's late at night, you you, you kind of make mistakes. But I was I was scrambling trying to, you know, put something together here. So you guys can chat. See, I'm thinking about you. The easy way out would have been, oh, you know, it's not really working. Give me some time. Let me let me figure it out. I'm going to bed. That wasn't the case. I must have spent 90 minutes trying to find the right template once I figured out that this did not have a sidebar. So it seems to me like it's about 70-30 on the chat. And if orange is too much, I don't know. what to, I, I could change the background color. I was just trying to, I like, you know, orange is one of those colors on the internet that's really good. It's a good internet color. All right. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for your feedback. Um, I'll look around with some other chat clients and see if, uh, uh, see if, you know, I find one where I can embed it in the sidebar. Can't please everybody. Some people like it better this way. Other people like the other thing. Maybe we'll try this for a week. See what, see what it's like. And then, um, I'll hunt around for another chat client and see, because I do need a sidebar. Those are important. All right, so we're here. We're back in the lovely city by the bay, also known as uh, Sodom and Gomorrah by the bay. Uh, San Francisco, energetically, is a very unique place. And I think that uniqueness is tied to Tartaria. And the the remnants of the, or, you know, whatever we call it. I'm not even sure if we um, call it Tartaria, but maybe, I, maybe we can just for the sake of a label, you know, we'll, we'll call it that because we, it all of a sudden drums up all these images of, you know, strange buildings, beautiful buildings that really for all intents and purposes shouldn't have been there. So we use the name and it, and it works. But San Francisco is rife with this energy. It, it, is, um, it is a very unique city in that regard. And more, it, it's probably the most unique city I've, I've ever been in. And I've never, by the way, that doesn't always mean I like it. I've always had this love-hate relationship with San Francisco. And I started going there. Uh, well, the first time I, I, my parents and I used to go there when I was a kid and we, uh, very young and, uh, we would, we would go out and we'd, we'd ride the cable cars. And if you're like a, a seven-year-old kid, a six, seven-year-old kid, and you're riding a cable car, trust me, it's a, 
it's a it's a total total gas i mean especially when you're hanging out on the on the the, the side of the cable car which for some reason my father let me do right so you're it's, it's almost like a a ride in an amusement park and in some in some instances when you're going downhill or taking some of these curves it really is and they're loud and they're clackety 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 and you they always have the bell ringing contest of the cable car drivers and a lot of the cable car drivers were were black so you know they got very into the bell ringing thing so they would actually have a yearly contest and so we would go to san francisco and We'd ride the cable cars and eventually we would go down towards Fisherman's Wharf, uh, the cannery, Ghirardelli Square, which is kind of a, it's a magical, there's a magical vibe there. I remember it's the 1960s and um, again, the cannery, which is next to Ghirardelli Square, um, it was, it almost had like a Renaissance fair vibe and they would have jugglers and um, magicians and you know, they would have almost like a renaissance style music it was it was kind of beautiful actually very civilized and um we didn't have a lot of money so we didn't spend a lot of money you know like we didn't go to fisherman's wharf to eat because it was too expensive for us but we would always go to this one candy shop down by fisherman's wharf and my father would get these Swedish fish. And he was, my father loved the jelly candy. He was into the jelly candy. So these things must skip a generation because I'm not into the jelly candy. But the Swedish fish I would eat every now and then. They were they were pretty good. He loved, he loved those fucking Swedish fish. So we'd go down there, we get Swedish fish, and eventually we'd take the cable car back and get to our car. So I started going to San Francisco when I was a pretty young kid. And on the Friday show last week, with Hans, I talked about how um, we uh, we went there a couple times during the Haight Ashbury period, and it was fucking nuts. I, and I I just remember like like as I was yesterday, that the image is just burned into my brain. And we're going down Haight, right? We're we're going down Haight Street, and the it's seething with people, it's seething and roiling kind of. Uh, parade of, of of human flesh and people are dancing and they're i mean it was like crazy it was almost like you were in i don't know uh puna circa like uh, 1975 with rajneesh it had that vibe if i could if i could you know match the vibe it was like it had but people also seemed kind of crazy it was like they're kind of out of their minds and I was there with, we, so we drove down Hay Street with my, my, my grandfather and my grandmother uh, from New Jersey. And, you know, that's like a really, there's a really different fucking world. And I wrote, I wasn't really into it. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't really into hippies. I didn't like hippies that much. Um, so I, I had this, uh, I was really into the whole spy thing back then. You know, James Bond, man from uncle. And I had one of those spy kits. So I, I loaded up on a lot of my uh, plastic weaponry and uh, went to uh, Haight Ashbury. <laughs> I'm like, okay, if shit gets out of hand, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take some of these fucking hippies out with my my plastic toy guns. But I liked the music, which was weird. 
like, oh yeah, I like this music thing. This other thing, I don't know. A little garish, a little sloppy, but the music is cool. Strange kid. Anyway, so that started my relationship with San Francisco going there when I was young. And then my father used to take me to, uh, to Playland, which um, is on the PCH Pacific Coast Highway. And oh, I've got a spider hanging from my camera. That's interesting. Um, so he would take me there when I would go, you know, graduate from one grade to another. And uh, we went there a couple times. And also, uh, just I think went there once or once or twice just recreationally. I think I had a birthday party there one time. And Playland was was uh, kind of an eyesore, and a lot of a lot of thugs would hang out there. And uh, so there was a lot of drugs at Playland, a lot of thugs. It, it became a very rough place, but they had one of the greatest. Um, fun houses ever like the fun house was a it should have been a national treasure it should have been absolutely national treasure now they had this um like a, a, a i don't know what you call it automaton uh laughing sal who like freaked all the kids out like she was she was scary that she was in front of the fun house so laughing Sal, I, I think laughing Sal almost made me piss my pants one time. Nobody liked laughing Sal. She was creepy. But once you got, got past laughing Sal and got into the fun house, you went through a mirror maze, which is kind of, it's kind of, you know, that's an interesting uh, way to get into the fun house, right? You have to make your way through all these different reflections of who you are and, and kind of feel your way through. And then once you got through, the fun house had three things that were pretty cool. And one of them, you, two of them, you could never do now. So they had this really big slide and uh, they gave you a burlap sack and you had to climb these steps and it was inside, of course. And they had like, like four, about five lanes. And then, you know, five kids would sit on these burlap sacks and they'd go and you'd slide down. It was really fun. Really, really fun. And then they had one of these um, cylinders, these big cylinders that turn. And, and like, that's pretty fucking dangerous now. Like, you, that you couldn't have this. So you get in there and some people who were tall enough, they could stretch their legs out and stretch their arms out and put up enough pressure where, where they could go, you know, in a circular motion with this thing. And, and if you're a little kid, you, you know, fuck around in there, run up on the walls and run down and laugh and giggle. And there was really no time limit, but after a while you would just kind of get bored with it, but it was fun. Uh, but the real, the, the real killer app inside that place was this turntable, which I've talked about. And it was really, they, they made it look like a turntable. Uh, the guy who was running the, 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 the ride, gets a ride. Um, it, it was like he was in a DJ booth and they made it, they kind of dressed it up to look like it was a turntable, like you were <clears throat> riding a turntable. So it was this giant wheel 
and um, it was made out of uh, it was made out of wood. It was pretty impressive. So the idea is, you know, you you they open the gates and you run on there, and all the kids sit their butts on this wheel, and it starts spinning round and round and round and round and round and round and, round and eventually it spins so fast that invariably you're going to get knocked off. And so that was kind of fun, right? Like getting knocked off, you'd fly off the thing and you'd fly into a padded wall. Again, you couldn't have this shit now. You couldn't do it to, to the insurance. Uh, people would bark and like, it'd be a nightmare and it was fun. But if you could find the center of that wheel or get close to the center of that wheel, and survived the wheel that was that was the magic getting thrown off was okay if you were didn't give a shit if you're just along for the ride getting thrown off well that's great that's fun it's fun you fly off that thing you pop into to the bag on the wall and you pick yourself up and you know it's kind of like a metaphor for life you get on the wheel it spins and it knocks you off and you're supposed to laugh at it and pick yourself up again. But if you were committed to getting into the center of the wheel and staying on, you didn't like it. And that's kind of where I was. So when, so my father said to me, you've got to get as close to the center as possible. If you can get into the center, you're going to be okay. So it's all about finding the center and being in that center point while everything is spinning around and it's knocking people off. I'm like, oh, okay. I kind of, I kind of got it. So there was this one time I got as close to the center as possible. I wasn't directly on the center, but I'd figured out how to, how to distribute my weight by putting my hands in front of me and creating like a triangle. And I used every single ounce of strength and will on this one ride. And I made it. I was like, I, I was on the entire spin without getting thrown off. And it was, you know, it was kind of a sense of accomplishment. Like, why I fucking conquered that thing, right? It's one of those memories as a kid. It's, you know, as a kid, you have memories that are, I think, I think they're luminary moments for your life. You can see kind of what's coming or what's ahead. That's one of those moments for me. Like if you just lock down and use, you know, try to get as close to the center as possible and lock down and create a position where the enough intention and will you will, you will get through this cyclonic moment. I think that's true. So I'm sure a lot of you have those moments. You look back in your life and go, wow. Yeah, that was a moment. I have a lot of them. Some of them are not great. Some of them are good, but they're there and they're, they're kind of, rattle around in your head and, and you know hopefully well we're all we're all pretty far down the line now but um if i was a younger person like in my 20s i would try to understand those moments because those are those are teachable moments those are moments that are iconic or archetypal and and learn from them because you're you're still not too old to understand what they meant and apply them to your life. So I think we all have them, right? And sometimes when you're having them, you're aware of, you're aware of those moments. You're aware like, oh, this is important. 
I need to pay attention. So we're going to get to Willie Brown and all the dark shit here in a minute. But I want to show you, um, let's see, what is it? Um, okay. I'm going to show you one of the uh, great landmarks of San Francisco. And um, so they, they had this, they had this uh, structure there called the, uh, the Sutro um, baths, which I've talked about before. And this is what it looked like back in the day. So look, look at the size of this thing. It's really interesting. They have all these different pools. They have a, a, they have a pool that's heated. I think they have a pool where they bring salt water in from the ocean. I bet you it's that one because nobody's in it. Um, and it looks to me, looks like maybe, <clears throat> maybe the twenties looks like it's been colorized and touched up. Mm, is that topiary? I don't know. <clears throat> but this was, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, this was one of the, uh, the crown jewels of San Francisco. Let me, uh, let me find another one. You know, this is what it looked like. It was the largest bathing establishment in the world. So this is kind of like the recreational version of the Crystal Palace. Pretty cool, huh? So this might have, I think this might have been the original, I think this just might be the saltwater pool, which is really fucking cold. That water is cold. And this is another place <clears throat> that I used to, I used to frequent a lot after its uh, demise because it had the feeling of like a, like Roman ruins. And I would just walk around this place all the time. Was, for, for me, it was a kind of a very meditative place to be for whatever reason. You can see it here. I'll show you. Oops, where is it? Here, there we go. So you can see some of the ruins here. That's where everything, that's where everything was. And, then, and there's a, obviously there's this hill here that you could take the hill and get out on the other side of this uh, hill and you would be looking straight at the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, on the hillside, you know, I, I don't know. I, again, it's one of these San Francisco things, just like the Palace of Fine Arts um, that I would go to. There was something powerful and mythical and kind of, you know, Romanesque about it. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've walked along this wall. And nobody went, nobody went in the water because it was just too freezing. 
But then if you uh, look at the, I'm going to get to uh, the topic of the day here. But if you, if you look at the Cliff House, which is one of the remnants of that era in time, it's another one of these structures that kind of um, defies its placement in the world. And um, let me see if I can find an old picture of the Cliff House. Um, yeah, here we go. I mean, this thing is crazy. And again, I feel like if we're going to talk about Tartaria, this has to be part of the discussion because the way this thing is built, it's nuts. Um, it's right out on this rock. The engineering skills to build this thing, uh, pretty impressive, I have to say. It's like we got a little bit of Antiquitech up here. But this was a marvel. And even later on, when it became a smaller version of it, and it was just a restaurant, which you'll be able to see... Uh, Kind of the more modern version. Let me see if I can show you the modern version. Yeah, this is like the modern version. This is this is what's left of it. I, I'm not even sure if that restaurant is open anymore. It wasn't a bad restaurant, actually. Right there. Yep, to close. It's closed. Wow. So when was this? Uh, 2020. Look at that. So that's where the other building, the other structure was. This is just kind of like the bottom part. They've completely removed everything. This is really interesting. This is called the camera obscura. And it was a giant camera, right? You would go in here and it would, you could see like a 180 degree view of this camera. And it would, it would project the, the image of the bay and the, and the bridge into this, uh, into this space. You know, pretty interesting technology. And the food there was pretty good, actually. There's another version. And at one, that's interesting. They had this totem pole. That's weird. Great view, right? Great view. Very cool place. It's closed now. Another memory gone. So when I was a kid, right here where those people are, man, they really changed it up, uh, was a place where you could get corn dogs. First corn dog I ever had in my life. So we'd go to Playland and we'd, 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 we'd hit the corn dogs. And it was like, these are pretty fucking good. I'm into the corn dog. So anyway, a little trip down memory lane. Thanks for taking it with me. All right. Now that I've given you the visionary kind of reverie that we're going to get our hands dirty and we're going to get into, uh, we're going to get into Willie Brown a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, Roger Boas 
And we're going to get into a little bit of Jim Jones today. Uh, Willie Brown is this very interesting character. Uh, this guy fucking ruled California and San Francisco in a way that I've never seen. Like Willie Brown was the consummate politician. Consummate. So he's got a, an eight-year run, January 8th to January 8th. And uh, he was there when he came in and San Francisco had a pretty lively, like, rave underground party scene. Like, it was happening. And Willie Brown shut it down. He shut it down. Why did he shut it down? It was because the club owners and the bar owners didn't like any competition. They didn't want these independent, you know, rave promoters running out these spaces and taking away their, their clientele or so they thought. So they basically got Willie Brown to be their bulldog and Willie Brown, you know, uh, deployed the police on these spaces. And so he, he was, he was responsible for shutting down the electronic music dance culture rave scene in San Francisco. And a lot of people were pissed. There were people that, I mean, they, they were, they were forming coalitions and they were having these, these uh, meetings to deal with him and he didn't give a shit. And that's kind of Willie Brown in a nutshell. If there was a, greater power and financial payoff coming from the, the electronic music rave dance world, Willie Brown would have dealt with them. That. That's Willie Brown. Willie Brown is into power. Um, he's into the politics of power, the power of politics, appointments, making money and using that platform to extend his reach and um, be a little king. That's really what Willie Brown was about. And he comes up through the this Burton machine, which I talked about yesterday. The Burton brothers, George Moscone and Willie Brown formed this coalition. So with the Burton brothers, they've got Moscone, as first a supervisor and then the mayor of San Francisco. And then they have Willie Brown in Sacramento, who is basically the, the speaker of the assembly, which is a pretty powerful. So the Burton brothers are these two brothers that have a lot of their power bases covered between two people until of course, Moscone gets taken out, which is what we looked at yesterday. So then Willie Brown becomes the the key figure in this group and eventually he moves from being the, the speaker of the assembly in California to becoming the mayor of San Francisco. And he does that what about um 18 years after Moscone. So there's a number of mayors 
Feinstein, and then they go through Art Agnos and Frank Jordan. And, and anyway, so here he is, and he is not like he'll use a progressive cause. You'll find this out with all these people, by the way, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or Dianne Feinstein or Kamala Harris or Willie Brown. They they are um, what I would call plastic progressives, meaning that they're they're able to use that voter base um, and those kind of you know headline agendas to stay elected um, and widen their power base because San Francisco is not a conservative city. Like it is a very progressive city, but the hardcore progressives of San Francisco were very critical of Willie Brown because there were a lot of times where he wasn't progressive enough for them. And Willie Brown, like I said, he had business interests. That's what he was about. He was about power. And all these people learn about power. Look at look at Nancy Pelosi when when it became expedient for Nancy Pelosi, like the, she doesn't really give a shit about these progressive values and ideals. She's there to stay elected, and so she knows that the people in San Francisco and her district care about them. So she'll go as far as they want her to to or need her to, so she can stay elected and in power. But I don't think she really gives a shit about that stuff. I don't think Feinstein gives a shit about it. Maybe they might have some, I don't know, key issue that they, you know, uh, can light their flinty hearts about, but they don't care. They they really don't care. They're just into power. And they're coming out of this power base, which is important to understand. And when AOC shows up, Pelosi is not into her because AOC is way left. Like she is way left of Nancy Pelosi. And so initially they had issues. And then what happened was, is that when AOC showed up and the squad shows up, they move everything left. Harris goes further left. Pelosi goes further left. Feinstein goes further left. Which, again, is dangerous because it creates a more extreme environment. Uh, you know, like, like Pelosi doesn't give a shit about identity politics, I guarantee you. All she cares about is making large sums of money. And if she was in a place like, let's say, Dallas, she'd be Republican. I'm telling you that right now. She would be a Republican. She would be kind of a left-center Republican. Um, who who do we have here that's like that? A left-center. Greg Abbott's uh, kind of a left-center Republican, actually. And um, the other asshole that I voted for. And one of the few times I voted. Anyway, they're just into power. And Willie Brown demonstrates that. And even Kamala Harris will demonstrate that. All right, so let's get into this a little bit. Uh, he's an American politician, Democratic Party, served over 30 years at California State Assembly, spending uh, 15 years as speaker. So that's a very powerful position. 
He later became mayor of San Francisco, the first African-American to hold that office. Now you have London Breed. The San Francisco Chronicle called Brown one of San Francisco's most notable mayors. By the way, the history of San Francisco's mayors are quite interesting. The most interesting being Joe Alioto, who's connected to the mob. Um, I remember one time I, I talked with him on the I talked with Joe Alioto on the phone because I was working for this magazine. We were doing this resource guide and had to I had to fact check it. He's one of the people I fact. He was actually a very pleasant man. He was very friendly on the phone, but Tucker Carlson's father wrote a story for Look Magazine, him and his buddy, and they basically said that Alioto was mob connected, and they had all this evidence. Well, Alioto winds up suing Look Magazine. He wins. Doesn't sue Tucker Carlson's father, by the way. That's kind of weird and interesting. They're like they're like untouchable, but Look Magazine has to settle with Alioto, and it ruins them. And I don't think it's a stretch to think that Aliota was mob-related. Very colorful character. Prior to that, you had George Christopher as mayor, another corrupt guy. They're all fucking corrupt. Um, he takes a bunch of bribes to stick the stadium out at Candlestick Point, which is brutal. It's a brutal stadium. The, the conditions are awful. Anyway, that's all their story. So Brown comes from a long line of very colorful mayors, and he's the, he's the peacock. Um, of the bunch. Brown graduated from San Francisco State. He's originally from Texas. That's my alma mater, by the way. And earned a JD from the University of California Hastings College of Law. I spent several years in private practice for being elected to the California Assembly in 1964. In his second attempt, Brown became the Democrats' whip in 1969 and speaker in 1980. He was known for his ability to manage colleagues and maintain party discipline. According to the New York Times, Brown became one of the country's most powerful state legislatures. legislators. His long tenure and powerful position were used as a focal point of the California ballot proposition to, to limit the terms of state legislatures, which passed. So he was around for so long, they had to figure out, we can't let somebody like him get in again, and we got to limit how long they can spend their, their time there. During the last three uh, post-initiative terms, Brown maintained control of the assembly despite a slim GOP majority by gaining several Republican support. See how he does that? He's fucking, he's, he's, he's kind of a snake. Willie Brown is a snake and he's a chameleon. He's a shapeshifter. He's, I'm just telling you, these people are into power and they're just using this progressive platform as a way to stay in power and exploit the power of, the so-called underclass. And when they bring more people into the country and they create this kind of wider division uh, through things like um, critical race theory or um, intersectionality, they're, what they're really doing is they're trying to solidify and galvanize and increase their power base. They don't give a shit about these people. Trust me. They're just into power. That's all. They're, they're, they're as power hungry as some of the Republicans who have their own version of it, which would be the kind of the Christian version. They'll exploit the Christian version. They don't give a shit about Christians. They're just in the power. Um, Brown served as mayor from January 8th, David Bowie and Elvis's birthday, 1996 to January 8th, 2004. His tenure was marked by significant increase in real estate development, public works, city beautification, and other large-scale city projects. 
He presided over the dot-com era. This guy's got impeccable fucking timing. So he's there when this boom happens, when San Francisco's economy was rapidly expanding. Brown's administration included more Asian-Americans, women, Latinos, gays, and African-Americans than the administrations of his predecessors. Term limits prevented him from running for a third term, and he was succeeded by a political protege, Gavin Newsom. Brown then retired from politics. So again, what does he do? What does he do? He creates this coalition. He's very clever, right? He'll create this coalition. He'll appoint a lot of different people that looks that make him look like he's down, right? He's like down with the cause. But on the other hand, like Brown is really pro-business, pro-growth, pro-construction. He's a clever motherfucker, I'm telling you. He's clever. And that's how he's able to stay stay around for so long. And he, Willie Brown understands power. He totally understands power. And from, from how he's dressed, like his attire, he always wears Brioni suits. He's got his hat. He's always got his hat on. So it's all, a lot of it has to do with his presentation. He learned that early on. So... Brown was a power dresser. You never saw him in any casual dress ever, period. Like he defines, this is the this is who I am. This is the class that I'm a part of. And I may have uh, some protégés or people that are in my circle that look different, dress different. But really, this is who I am. He's very smart. He's uh, born March 20th, so he's, I looked at his chart, he's right in the edge of Pisces, but he's got a lot of planets in Aries, and um, Mar, I think he has a Mercury and Aries in the 8th house, and that's all about power, that's all about behind the scenes and power. Uh, small segregated, segregated town in East Texas, marked by racial tensions, so he's born in Mineola. He was the fourth of five children during Brown's childhood. Mob violence particularly, periodically erupted in Mineola, keeping African-Americans from voting. His first job was a shine boy in a whites-only barbershop. He later worked as a janitor, fry cook, and field hand. He learned his strong work ethic at a young age from his grandmother. He graduated from Mineola Colored High School, which later described as substandard, and left for San Francisco at the age of 17 to live with his uncle. Brown originally one attended Stanford. His interview from Stanford was a faculty member at San Francisco State College and was surprised by Brown's ambition. Although Brown did not meet the qualifications for Stanford or San Francisco State, the professor facilitated Brown's admission to the latter school on probation. Brown adjusted to college studies after working especially hard to catch up in his first semester. So one of the things that Brown does demonstrate is that he has a very strong work ethic. Um. Brown had just called hard to catch. He especially hard to catch up in his first. So he's a guy that's literally coming from kind of a shit high school in Texas to California. And he's very ambitious and he wants to go to the best school in the area. It gets turned down, goes to San Francisco state. And then he has to catch up with everything. Right. Which is like, like he's not, he's not a very well-liked person in some circles. And in a lot of ways, he's kind of a traitor, right? He's kind of a traitor. We'll get into that with 9-11. But you cannot deny the guy's tenacity 
um, his political acumen and his ability to literally navigate from very humble beginnings to being like one of the most powerful politicians in California and the United States. That says something about him. And who knows what he's got going on behind the scenes and the dirt and the extortion because politics is fucking dirty. It's totally dirty. So he's got he's got to be in that world too. Okay, so let's keep going. Uh, he joined the Young Democrats, became friends with John L. Burton. So that's the Burton machine. Brown originally wanted to be a math instructor, but campus politics changed his ambitions. He became active in his church and the San Francisco NAACP. Brown worked as a doorman janitor and shoe salesman to pay for college. I mean, you you got to kind of admire that. Who knows? Maybe he had some side hustles too. You never know. Um, he was a member of the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. That's something because like fraternities aren't very big at San Francisco State. It's a commuter school. Uh, you know, unless you're living there on campus, it doesn't really matter a hell of a lot. He joined the ROTC. What does that tell you about him? That's an interesting wrinkle with Brown, right? Why does he do it? Because they're paying him. It's helping him with his college tuition. And then he'll do the weekends, right? And one, one weekend a month, and he'll do the ROTC stuff. Brown earned a bachelor's degree in political science from San Francisco State in 1955. He later said that his decision to attend law school is primarily to avoid being drafted. Doesn't surprise me. He quit the ROTC and joined the California Army National Guard's 126th Medical Battalion, where he was trained as a dental hygienist. I bet you didn't know that about Willie Brown. He could he could clean your teeth. <laughs> well, it is, I mean, whatever you think about this guy, he's kind of fucking interesting. He quit the, uh, Brown attended University of California Hastings College of the Law, where he also worked as a janitor. So his work ethic is not in doubt. I mean, this guy is going to, he's going to get through whatever he needs to get through because he's got goals. It's clear he's got goals. He befriended future San Francisco Mayor George Moscone, for whom Brown later managed a campaign. Brown earned a JD in 1958 and was class president. So they meet each other um, at Hastings in Berkeley. During the late 1950s, early 60s, Brown was one of the few African-Americans practicing law in San Francisco. When he opened his own business, he practiced criminal defense law, representing pimps, prostitutes, and other clients. I guess that's where he learned to dress like a pimp. Uh, that more prominent attorneys would not represent. One early case was to defend Mario Savio on his first civil disobedience arrest. So Mario Savio was this guy that went to Berkeley and he was a fiery orator and part of the, uh, part of the anti-war movement. The weird thing about Mario Savio is uh, he never graduated from Berkeley and he went back to school and he went to San Francisco State. And I and he actually graduated from San Francisco State the same year I graduated. So Mario Savio was part of my graduating class, which is really weird because he was much older than me. Um, he quickly became involved in the civil rights movement, leading a well-orchestrated sit-in to protest housing discrimination after a local real estate office refused to work with him because of his race. It became personal, right? That's personal. It was like, fuck you. I'm going to make this personal. I'm, I'm going to, and he may have had some skin in the game, literally and figuratively around the civil rights stuff, 
but it affected him personally, which is a big Brown thing. Brown helped organize public protests and attract media coverage. His role in protest gave him notability to run for the state assembly. Brown began his first run for the California State Assembly in 1962 by having local African-American ministers pass around a hat, collecting $700. He lost by 600 votes before winning a second election in 64. So he's tenacious. Willie Brown, you'll see this. He's, he's got tenacity. Brown was one of four black Americans in the assembly in 1965. The other three were Mervyn uh, M. Dimely, F. Douglas Farrell, and Byron Rumford. Diamondly will go on to also become a very powerful politician in California. He continued to be reelected to the assembly until 1995. In the 1960s, Brown served as chair of the legislative representation committee, a powerful position that helped him climb the assembly ranks. He became the Democrats assembly whip in 1969. Brown also served the assembly ways and means committee in 1972, delivered a speech at the democratic national convention. He lost his bid for speakership in 72 and 75 Brown authored and lobbied the successful passing of the consenting adult sex bill that legalized homosexuality in California. Okay. I want to talk about that. So Brown is uh, doing this because number one, he understands that there is a growing homosexual slash gay voter base. Number two, Brown is a switch hitter. He's been, he's been married has had kids. He's had the notable affair with uh, Kamala Harris, but, but Willie Brown is a switch hitter. And you may ask, you may ask yourself, Robert, how do you know this? So I have a story, personal story. This was around uh, 19, I think it was around 1997, maybe 97, 98, right around there. And I was doing a lot of terror reading and, and I would meet these people. I, I don't know how I would meet these people, but I would meet these people and they would become clients. And um, there was this one woman who she was older and she lived in this apartment building in uh, Knob Hill in San Francisco. And I think I went to her house, her apartment twice to do readings for in her apartment. And Willie Brown lived on the same floor that she did. So she got to see him come in and out of his apartment all the time. And um, she told me that, that he was into these young Asian trans boys. So they, they, they had their equipment, but they, but they looked like young Asian women. And she said that, they, he would bring them back to his apartment all the time. And uh, there's a, a, a restaurant in San Francisco. What is it called? It's called Thai something, not Thai stick, but it's, it's Thai something. Anyway, it's a, it's, it's a, basically it's a Thai restaurant with a trans cabaret. And they're all like these, you know, very beautiful little Asian boys that dance and sing. It's, it's weird. It's a kind of a weird place. And I went there one time because my friend had uh, a um, gift certificate to this place. And he said, I got a gift certificate to this Thai restaurant in San Francisco. You want to? Oh, yeah, sure. Why not? Go there. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's tranny town. He liked it. He was into it. But he, 
he would he would later demonstrate to me why he was into it, not to me personally, but in my presence with another person. I told the story before. Anyway, Willie Brown. I'm not going to tell him that. Willie Brown is a switch hitter, right? So, seventy-two. It's like you're gay. It's okay because if you weren't gay, um, it was uh, you had legal issues, and you can see that in the movie Dirty Harry with Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood is on the on the trail of the uh, Scorpio Killer, and I think he's on Mount Davidson. And he's propositioned by this gay guy who is there and Clint Eastwood basically threatens to, you know, ar arrest him. Like he has disgust for this guy and he threatens to arrest him because it's illegal, right? So Dirty Harry came out in 1972. I think it was shot in 1971. So that scene is uh, partial at that time and, and not incorrect, by the way. Okay, so he does that, right? Um, thus earning the strong and lasting support of San Francisco's gay community. He's a politician. But he's also a switch hitter. Um, similarly, he voted against AB 607, which banned same-sex marriage in 1977, further building the reputation as a supporter of the civil rights of gays and lesbians. During the 70s, Brown continued to expand his legal practice, including the representation of several major real estate developers, he won speakership in 1980 with 28 Republican and 23 Democratic votes. Isn't that interesting? Getting more Republicans vote for him for Democrats because he's bit, Brown's about business. Brown was California's first Black American Speaker of the Assembly and served in the office from 81 to 95. In 1990, he helped negotiate an end to the 60-day, 64-day budget standoff. In 1994, Brown gained the vote of a few Republicans to maintain speakership, and the Democrats lost control. Of the assembly to the Republicans by Jim Brulte. Brown regained control in 1995 by making a deal with Republican defectors. He's a fucking deal maker. Willie Brown is the consummate deal maker, both of whom were elected speaker by the Democratic minority. During their tenures, Brown was the de facto speaker. He's fucking smart. He's Machiavellian. He's articulate. He always, he, uh, you want to talk about somebody who plays 5D chess? Willie Brown plays 5D chess. Brown's long service in the assembly and political connections, his strong negotiation skills, and the assembly's tenure for leadership appointments combined to give Brown nearly complete control over the California legislature by the time he became assembly speaker. According to the New York Times, Brown became one of the country's most powerful state legislatures. He nicknamed himself the Ayatollah of the Assembly. He he has no problem with power, right? No problem. He understands it. He relishes it. He um, uses it as a brand. Brown, was, but 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 here's the thing about Brown, which is interesting because even though he's into power. In a weird way, he's extremely likable, right? And by the time you get to a certain place and you accumulate a certain amount of power, people want to be aligned with you. And he figured that out. Uh, Brown was extremely popular in San Francisco, but less so in the rest of the state. Nevertheless, he wielded 
great control over statewide legislative affairs and political appointments, making it difficult for his conservative opponents to thwart his power. Partially to remove, remove Brown from his leadership position, the state constitutional amendment initiative was proposed and passed by the electorate in 1990, imposing term. So they, they had to term limit him out. He was that powerful. Brown became the focus of the initiative and raised just under a million to defeat it. The California legislature challenged the law, but the courts upheld it. California Proposition 140 also cut the legislature's staff budget by 30%. So they're whacking away at his power base, causing Brown to reduce legislative staff by at least 600. So he had all these fucking people working for him. He's managing a mini empire is really what he's doing. Under the California term limits, no speaker of the California State Assembly would be permitted to have a longer tenure than Brown's. After term limits forced Brown out of office, the assembly restructured its rules to give most of the powers held by the speaker to a leadership committee made up of senior members of both parties. They're like, we never want to have this happen again. This guy became like Caesar inside of the assembly, California state politics. So they made all these changes, like never again. So where does he go? Brown gained a reputation for knowing what was occurring in the state legislature at all times. He's a 5D chess player. In 1992, he gave $1.18 million to the Democratic Party to help, pay, to help with voter registration and several campaigns. He gave that to them. Right? He gave it to them. That's crazy. Some of which was from contributions from tobacco companies and insurance companies. There you go. This is what Brown does. This is what these politicians do. He's taking money from the tobacco world and the insurance world, funneling it over. He doesn't care. He really doesn't care. He's about building a base, personal connections, personal power, and accruing more of it. That's, and he's the model for that. Pelosi and Feinstein, Harris, they're all in, in their own way acolytes of Brown and his model. As speaker, he worked to defeat the street, three strikes law. Critics have claimed Brown did not do enough to raise legislature's ethical standards or to protect the environment. No, because he's into business. Like in those environmental concerns, they'll get in the way of business. During his time in Sacramento, he estimates he raised close to $75 million to help elect and reelect state Democrats. Brown led efforts in the assembly for state universities to divest from South Africa to increase AIDS research funding. He helped obtain state funds for San Francisco, including funding for public health, mental health funds. Those are all, those are all things right now that are very popular in our current um, discussion, right, nationally. Brown held up the state, held up the 1992 state budget for 63 days until Pete Wilson had another $1.1 billion for public schools. So he's fucking powerful. Brown had a reputation in the assembly for his ability to manage people. Republican State Senator Ken Maddy of Fresno noted Brown's ability to decide up the situation and create sometimes on the spot a winning strategy. According to Hobson, he was a brilliant daycare operator. He knew exactly how to hold the hand of his assembly members. He dominated California politics like no other politician in the history of the state. From 75 to 78, Brown supported the People's Temple led by Jim Jones. While he was being investigated for criminal, alleged criminal wrongdoing, Brown attended the temple perhaps a dozen times and served as master of ceremonies at a testimonial dinner 
for Jim Jones, where he said in his introduction, I am, let me present to you a combination of Martin King, Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, Chairman Mao. <laughs> That's how he's describing Jim Jones. And guess what? He's probably right on at least three of those accounts, maybe four, because Einstein was kind of a fraud. Brown later said if he knew then he was mad, clearly he wouldn't have appeared with him. That's not really true. Jim Jones had a lot of clout. By the way, Redwood Valley is in Ukiah. I was, uh, Ren um, shared that information with me yesterday. That's where they bust the voters in. That's where they had a lot of Jim Jones people living up near U Ukiah, which is up near the, the border between um, uh, California and Oregon. So he's involved with the fucking People's Temple. George Moscone's involved with the People's Temple. They're, they're using Jim Jones as an operative for a lot of different things, mostly as a base. In 1995, Brown ran for mayor of San Francisco in his announcement speech. He said San Francisco needed a resurrection that he would bring risk-taking leadership. The city needed Brown placed first in the first half of the round of voting. But because no candidate received 50% of the vote, he faced incumbent Frank Jordan in the December runoff. Brown gained the support of Supervisor Roberta Actenberg, who placed third in the first round of the voting. He campaigned on working to address poverty and problems with Muni. He called Jordan the inept bumbler and criticized his leadership. Jordan criticized Brown for his relations with special interests during his time in state assembly. Brown easily defeated Jordan. Jordan was not a very strong mayor, and the press was out to get him. Brown's inaugural celebration included an open invitation with 10,000 attendees in local restaurants, providing 10,000 meals to the homeless. Willie Brown does things big, right? He's like, okay, fuck it. I'm going big here. President Clinton called Brown to congratulate him, and the crack congratulations were broadcast to the crowd. He delivered his inaugural address without notes and led the orchestra in Stars and Stripes Forever. He arrived at the event in a horse-drawn carriage. This guy understands politics, drama, and theater. He's larger than life, right? That's his thing. He wants to be somebody that's larger than life. And he carries this off with bravado, great political acumen, and the ability to keep himself from being indicted on any number of times and accounts on corruption. Uh, Brown tried to develop a plan for universal health care, but there wasn't enough in the budget to do so. Um, he increased the budget to $5.2 and added 4,000 new employees. Well, there you go. Now you got 4,000 new people voting for you. Uh, he helped oversee the, the sadly of a two-day garbage strike in April. So sometimes a lot of these things are set up. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he got together with the, with the garbage workers and said, listen, go on strike for a couple of days. And, um, you know, I'll, you know, we'll make, I'll make sure you get a, you get a bump, but you're going to go on strike and I'm going to come in and I'm going to solve it. That stuff happens all the time, by the way. And I'm sure that that's what happened. He probably sat down with, you know, labor and, and, um, the city workers and just, just go do this. It's good for optics. It'll, it'll allow me to help you get that money. Oh, look, he solved the garbage crisis. Um, Brown opened hit, uh, opened city hall on Saturdays to answer questions. 
He would later claim of his mayorship that he helped restore the city's spirit and pride. Brown's opponents in the 1999 mayoral re-election campaign were former Mayor Jordan and Clint Riley. They criticized Brown for spending the city's $1 billion in budget growth without addressing its major problems and creating an environment of corruption and patronage at City Hall. Absolutely. That's what Brown was about. Tom Amiano, he's gay. He's a comedian, was a late writing candidate and faced Brown in the runoff election. Brown won re-election by a 20-point margin. Most major developers and business interests supported an Amiano campaign on a promise he would raise the hourly minimum to $11 and scrutinize corporate business taxes. Do you think he's going to get fucking elected? No. So Brown is really smart. He plays identity politics with the base. And then he's really into corporate business interests. And he juggles both of these worlds. And he gives a little over here, a little over here, a little over here, a little over here. And it helps him maintain power for a very long time. Uh, the 1999 mayoral race was subject to the documentary, See How They Run. Um, President Clinton recorded a telephone message on Brown's behalf. Brown's campaign spent $3.1 million to Amiano's $300,000. By the way, Clinton called him the real slick Willie. All right. Here's where it gets weird. According to Brown, although he was scheduled for a flight to New York City the day of the September 11, 2001 attacks, he received a low-key warning. He talked about this just days after, like a day or two after this whole thing happened. In a phone call from a member of the airport security detail who advised him not to fly. Brown disregarded the warning and was waiting for a ride to the airport at 8 a.m. Pacific time when he learned of the attacks, he immediately ordered the city to close schools and courts concerned over the potential uh, for additional terrorist attacks. In addition, he recommended to representatives of other possible targets in San Francisco, including the Bank of America Tower and Transamerica Pyramid, that they also close. In February 2003, Brown appointed Police Chief Ed Sanders, Earl Sanders, and several top San Francisco Police Department officials were, uh, oh, his appointed police chief and other officials were arrested for conspiring to uh, obstruct the police investigation into an incident in involving off-duty officers called Fajita Gate. So he, okay, so he appoints them, appointed chief, they were, they were arrested for conspiring to obstruct the police. So they were arrested for obstructing an investigation into their own, uh, into their own people. Brown ended San Francisco's policy for punishing people for feeding the homeless. San Francisco continued to enforce its policy regarding the conduct of the homeless in public places. In 1998, Brown forcibly removing homeless people from Golden Gate Park, supported forcibly removing people from Golden Gate Park, and police crackdowns on the homeless for drunkenness and urinating, defecating, or sleeping on the sidewalk. Um, so on the one hand, he's ending the policy of feeding the homeless. And on the other hand, he's like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> it's like, this is Willie Brown in a nutshell. And why? Because he's got a bunch of people who are rich, who don't want these people defecating and urinating on the streets and he's beholden to them. So he's going to do it. Right. 
Brown introduced uh, job training programs, $11 million drug treatment program. San Francisco, the country's 13th largest city at the time, had the nation's third largest homeless population at a peak of 16,000. November 1997, Brown requested nighttime helicopter searches in Golden Gate Park. His administration spent hundreds of millions of dollars creating new shelters, supportive housing, and drug treatment centers to address homelessness. But these measures did not end homelessness, right? Like you could throw a bunch of money at the problem, but it doesn't solve the problem. Uh, in 96, Brown approved the Equal Benefits Ordinance, which required city contractors to give their employees domestic partner benefits. Uh, in 1998, he wrote uh, President Clinton a letter urging him to halt federal lawsuit aimed at closing medical marijuana clubs. Brown always knows which side of the, br the bread is buttered, and he's always buttering both sides. One of Brown's central campaign promises was his 100-day plan for muni. He said he would fix the city's municipal bus system in that many days. Brown supported the peer pressure bus patrol program, which paid former gang members and troubled youth to patrol muni buses. He claimed the program helped reduce crime. He fired Muni Chief Phil Adams and replaced him with his chief of staff, Emilio Cruz. In 1998, Brown was mayor during the uh, summer of the Muni meltdown as Muni implemented the new ATC system. And he promised riders there would be better times ahead. A voter-approved initiative the next year helped Brown improve Muni services. Brown increased Muni's budget by tens of millions of dollars over his tenure. He later said it was a mistake and overpromising with his 100-day plan. So Muni is the municipal um, line inside of San Francisco. Muni's buses, Muni's trolley cars. I think cable cars are in there as well. And um, they were kind of a, a mess, right? Um, it was dangerous. A lot, of the, a, a lot of the buses wouldn't show up on time. Um, they were in disrepair. So he, he, you know, he tried to fix that. Uh, Brown helped mediate a settlement to the 1997 bar strike. So this is an area that has a lot of, you know, union striking going on. Brown's able to navigate that world fairly easily. During his term as mayor, Brown quietly favored the demolition and abolition of the Trans Bay Terminal to accommodate redevelopment of the site for market rate housing. Certainly, um, centrally located first mission streets in the financial district, South Beach, the terminal originally served as the San Francisco terminus for electric commuter trains of the East Bay electric lines and key system of streetcars and the Sacramento Northern Railroads, which ran on the lower deck of the San Francisco Oakland Bay Bridge. So they, they used to have trains that would run across the bay underneath the bridge. Pretty sophisticated stuff. Uh, since the termination of the streetcar service in 1958, the terminal has seen continuous service as a major bus facilities. It's a shithole, or it was. I don't know what happened to it. Um, the terminal also serves passengers traveling to San Mateo County in North Bay. It's kind of located fairly close to where Cal, Cal, Caltrain drops people off. They're not too not that far apart. Um, so let's see. Once completed, Caltrain riders would no longer need to transfer to Muni to reach the downtown. So I, I, I guess he made some changes there. Today, the terminal is being planned for redevelopment as a region-wide mass transit hub. So it still hasn't been solved. But with a new tunnel that would extend Caltrain. Okay. So Caltrain, you could walk, but it's not an area you want to walk through. So Brown, this gives you the background. So he's got favoritism, criticisms, FBI investigations. 
So maybe what I'll do is I'll do a part two here because this is where we get into um, Kamala Harris. So Brown's relationship with Alameda County Deputy District Attorney Kamala Harris preceded his appointment of Harris to two California state commissions in the early 90s. So he knew her already back in the 90s. San Francisco Chronicle called the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board and the California Medical Assistance Commission patronage positions. So he probably created them and then brought Harris in. When the appointments became a political issue in Harris's 2003 race for district attorney, she responded, whether you agree or disagree with the system, I did the work. Brown's relationship with Harris gained renewed attention in early 2019 after she became a U.S. senator and ran for president. Brown addressed these questions by publishing a piece in the San Francisco Chronicle titled, Sure, I Dated Kamala Harris, So What? <laughs> he wrote that he may have influenced her career by appointing her to boards and supporting her run for district attorney, but added that he had no influence. That he, uh, he had also influenced the careers of other politicians. It's a little bit different. They may have gone down on him too, who knows? But we know about Heels Up Harris. Brown noted the difference between Harris and other politicians he had helped was that Harris was the only one who, after I helped her, sent word that I would be indicted if I so much jaywalked while she was DA. That's politics for you. Very interesting. In a lot of ways, Kamala Harris out-politicked Willie Brown. Look where she is, look where he is, right? She was always able to get to the next level and the next step on the political pyramid. And right now she's unfortunately vice president of the United States. Okay. So I'm going to stop here. And what I'll do tomorrow is um, I might run a little bit longer tomorrow because I do want to talk about some other things in San Francisco. I want to finish up Willie Brown and we're going to get into the dark side of Willie Brown. Um, and I also want to uh, touch on some of the, occult power of San Francisco. And you guys were talking about it in chat yesterday. You were talking about Michael Aquino, who um, is in San Francisco uh, at the Presidio. Um, also the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey um, in San Francisco. So I want to talk a little bit about that tomorrow and the role that some of these people play in the San Francisco story, because it's pretty significant, especially Aquino. So tomorrow we'll do kind of a two-parter. We'll finish up on Willie Brown, and then we'll dive into sort of the dark occult um, piece around San Francisco. Even Jim Jones is part of that, right? Jim Jones, there's a, it's, people's temple thing is fucking dark and occult. It's masquerading as Christianity, but there's a whole other thing going on there. So we'll get into that tomorrow. Uh, Friday, we'll have Howdy McCoskey. He'll be on the show. I have no idea what we're going to talk about. I'm watching some of his latest streams and a lot of philosophical conversation, which I'm sure will be no different with Howdy on Friday. And in the meantime, I'll, I'll look into another uh, chat client and... Um, try to do some work on this new version of the website, which is here to stay now because I can't go back to the other one. We can only improve and get better, one would hope, right? Okay. 
So thanks for being here. Thanks for taking a little trip through memory lane, California, and understanding the nature of power in politics. You're seeing it. Willie Brown demonstrates it. He is, he is and it's, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It's just morphed. And the, the base has become more eclectic and perhaps more politicized and radicalized. All right. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to stay open to what's possible uh, from uh, me and the uh, cat crew. I'm Robert Phoenix. Take good care. Thanks for being here. I appreciate all of you and your support. We'll see you tomorrow.